The following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. Bible to the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, we're uh, in, probably end up being about a five-week series on Ecclesiastes. It's right in the, near the middle of your Bible after Psalms and Proverbs. Um, and we said this is kind of the, I don't know, Solomon and this author of Ecclesiastes is kind of the Eeyore of the Bible, right? He's kind of He's kind of just that, that cup is half empty and the rest of you are, are just in denial um, kind of guy. Um, and, and we're talking about living intentionally in an aimless world. And he, he uses this, this word hevel, right, which means meaninglessness or like vapor or vanity. And he's just like, it's all life under the sun as you pursue it is just meaningless. And, and, uh, and he looks at this idea of life under the sun, right, apart from God. It's hevel, it's, it's vapor, it's a, the message translates it, it's a spitting into the wind, uh, all these different pursuits uh, that we have in life. And so we, we talked about uh, the first week, this idea of planting seeds and setting trajectories in our life to, uh, that will bear fruit in years to come or even generations to come. And then a- Andrew talked two weeks ago about being intentional with our words, right? Not just being a part of the hevel, the hot air. <laughs> right, that, that comes, but actually having meaningful words and intentional in how we speak. And now, what you've all been waiting for, uh, we're going to be talking about money and stewardship and how to be intentional with our finances. Um, so, right, it's a, it's a challenging topic in church. And I, I, I've kind of seen in my, my time following Jesus and being involved in church is that there's a pendulum swing. That either there's like too much preoccupation with money in church and you go and you leave your wallet at home because you don't know they're going to talk about money again. And, and, or we, we see on the TV the televangelists, right? And they're going to, they're going to uh, they're, they have all their bling, right? And they're going to convince us that if you just give all your money to them, then God will give you bling of your own. And, and it's just this, uh, this over-preoccupation of, of consumerism and money that grows in the church. And so we're like, I don't want any of that. So it goes in the opposite way. And we just, we're like, okay, shh, hush, hush. Like money is this dirty topic. We just don't talk about it in church because we don't want to offend anyone. We don't want anyone to think that we're just out to get their money. And, and so we just totally ignore it, right? It's this other pendulum swing. Now, I think we all recognize the problem with the first half, the first side, right? I don't think it's as obvious what the problem is with the other. Because if we're not learning from Jesus and from God's people how to think about money and our resources, where are we going to learn from? Hmm? We're going to learn from the world. We're going to learn from our culture. We live and breathe materialism. In this country, we're, we're working, we're shopping, we're, we're like, it's just a part of everyday life. And if we remove it from our discipleship, 
if we remove it from, from how we learn to grow and follow Jesus together, there's going to be a significant hole in, in our discipleship, and it's going to get filled by our culture. So I don't want us to err on that side. And so at the risk of being offensive or, um, or whatever, being misunderstood, we're going to take some time and talk about stewardship. Because um, it's in the Bible, actually all over the place. Um, so we're going to start with Solomon. We're going to have two heart-to-heart conversations this morning. I'm going to talk to Solomon, and we're going to hear from him. And, and then we're going to sit down with Jesus and hear from him. Now Solomon, right, the Eeyore, uh, he is gonna, he's going to be that prophetic voice that cuts through the illusion of our culture and the, the materialism in our world. And it's, I want me to imagine, there's this, uh, this, this picture scene. Imagine you're sitting uh, in a room and you're looking out a window and it's got vertical blinds, okay, the kind that you can kind of turn, right, or you like this and, and, they, and they, they turn. And so, and then there's, there's a projector that's putting an image on the screen like this one, okay? And, and it's, it's the image of our culture and it's the, the, the story that it's telling, and it's a story of the good life. This is the good life. Now, Solomon, in his prophetic way, is going to turn the louvers, the blinds, about 45 degrees, okay? And if you stand still straight on, what do you see? You still see the projected image, right? You still see the story, the good life that the culture is giving us, and we have to step to the side, and if you look at it in the 45-degree angle, what do you see? You don't see the image anymore, right? You can see perfectly through it to the outside. And so Solomon is going to help us kind of step to the 45-degree angle to see through the illusion of our culture's stories. And then Jesus is going to show us a picture of what that good life is, what the good life of the kingdom is um, that really does satisfy. So that's where we're going. Now, Solomon, if you, if you turn there with me to Ecclesiastes, right, we said that he's, he's this, like, rich king, and he pursues pleasure in all these different ways. Um, and in chapter 2, we learn about, like, my ESV has the heading, the vanity of self-indulgence, right? And you, you read through here, and you hear about all the big palaces he built and the gardens he planted and, and, and then all the wives he had and, and the slaves and all these things he pursued, Okay? And he says, I had it all. The entertainment, his singers, and his, his concubines, and all of this. And then in Ecclesiastes 2.11, he says this. He says, then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He says, all of it, right? That's what it was. In the end, I gained nothing. I searched for it, right? I, I, I love this uh, illustration from Rick McKinley from Imago Day. He says uh, that these things that we pursue in life, it's like the ice cream truck in the summer, right? That plays the song. Whatever it is, you're like, oh, I hear the song, ice cream. And you come running out of your house or you, or you, you kind of run, run down the street. You look, ice cream, ice cream, ice cream. And then you get to the truck and you find out, nope, no ice cream. You open it up, nope, they got nothing left. And, and the song is played and we chase after the truck and then there's nothing there. 
So he says this, this pursuit of money, money is this thing that's frustrating. It's, it's vanity. It's a spitting into the wind. Now, I think the heart of this meaninglessness of money, we see in Ecclesiastes, is the dual nature of it. Okay, so here we read in chapter 5, it's meaningless, it's worthless, it doesn't satisfy, it's nothing. And now look at verse Ecclesiastes 10.19. I don't know if you ever heard this verse. It's in the Bible. Um, (laughs) 10.19. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Amen? Amen? Come on, come on. What? Money answers everything. So the author of Ecclesiastes, he's not some like pious church preacher that's just like, ah, money, it's dirty, it's wrong, it's bad, it's worthless. Just quit your good job and join the ministry and be poor with the rest of us. Right? He's not, that's not the view, this platonic kind of view of money. The spiritual's good, the physical's bad. Uh, no, he's like, you know what? No, money answers everything. Money is a tool that can accomplish amazing things in life. If you put enough money towards something, you can probably get it done. Right? That's just, that's a reality. And yet we know it doesn't satisfy, right? It answers everything, and yet it answers nothing. Right? The, the good life that money is supposed to be able to purchase for us is just a dream. That's always out of reach. And he's going to drive into this a little bit more. And this is where we're going to, we're going to camp, okay? So turn back to Ecclesiastes 5. And we're going to see how, yes, in one sense, money answers everything. And in another, it answers nothing. Ecclesiastes 5, 10 through 12. And here he is again, just helping us step aside, to see through and past that illusion. Uh, of consumerism. Ecclesiastes 5.10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. Getting ready for tax season, huh? (laughs) And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Isn't that an interesting contrast? The man who works hard during the day, swinging a hammer, sleeps well at night, nothing to worry about, versus the man pining and worrying about his investments in the stock market and and, and who might try to take what and how is he going to do his taxes and all this stuff, and he doesn't sleep. Or he has all his money and he's indulging and over-consuming, and he's just sick from his consumption. Now, as we read this, we, we agree, right? Like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true. But if, you're, if we're honest, I think the world will agree with that. Like, this is not just a Christian idea. In fact, it doesn't feel like a big insight to me, right? We all know that obesity and heart disease are a direct result of our unhealthy and overconsumptive lifestyles, right? We go through the grocery store, we stand in line, and we see, we see the tabloid covers, at least. We don't read them, right? But we relook at the covers, at least. And we know the rich and famous people are not happy. Right? This is not a surprise. 
right? The Beatles told us back in the day, right, money can't buy us love. The culture knows this. Or if you're a little younger, my generation, Notorious B.I.G. taught us that with more money comes more problems, right? Thank you. Or maybe you remember the Will Rogers line. Too many people spend money they haven't earned to buy things they don't want to impress people they don't like. Right? Or maybe Brad Pitt in Fight Club, who reminds us we are not our job, we are not our bank accounts, and we're most definitely not our khakis. Right? This is the culture preaching this to itself. Okay? Even the commercials that are trying to get you to buy things. Right? There are some things money can't buy, but for everything else, there's MasterCard. What's the message? Money. Money won't make you happy. Right? It, it, our culture knows that. It's like this schizophrenic confusion. And that's, you can see it in that commercial, right? Right? Uh, the advertising, all this. It, it, it feeds our consumeristic appetites. And it trains us through these rituals of shopping and consumption to find our identity in our bank accounts. Right? That's how our culture is designed. And yet, and then like the prophets of our culture, right? The artists and the creatives, the musicians, right? They're, they're saying, hey, you know, and by the way, they're some of the richest people in the world, right? But they're saying, hey, don't believe it. It's a lie. Money won't satisfy. And they're just like confronting, right? The, this, this radical view that goes against everything in our culture, right? Yeah, they're singing the songs. Money won't satisfy. Money can't buy you love. By the way, download my song. And go pay 12 bucks to watch my movie in the theater. Right? There's this, this schizophrenic confusion that we see in our culture. And the problem in our relationship with money is not so much that we don't know the right answers, right? We just said the culture knows the right answer. That's not the problem. It's not that we think with our heads that we actually will be happy with the new shiny device or that nice pair of shoes to add to our collection. It, we know it won't make us happy, right? The problem is far deeper. It resides in our hearts. Our issue is at the gut level of what we desire, and it manifests in our habits and rhythms of life, especially those things that we do without even thinking about them. And so we, we, see, we see this key word here in uh, Ecclesiastes 5, and the key for understanding Solomon's view of money is this word love, right? He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income, right? What does it mean to love money? What's that mean? Love speaks of the desires of our hearts. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says it like this. God has put eternity into man's heart. Or St. Augustine says it this way in his confessions. You have made us, and it's a prayer to God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Our hearts are wired for eternity, and we experience rest when our lives are ordered towards God's kingdom, and we experience restlessness and anxiety when we're oriented to lesser things, to this fault, we stare at this false view of the good life. Now, we know love is not simply an emotion, 
But some want to take it the other way. Well, it's just a decision, right? Decide to love. No, it's something more complicated than that. Something uh, different. Something even bringing those things together. Love is our most fundamental orientation to the world. It's not so much a conscious choice. It's more like a baseline inclination, right? It's the default orientation that then leads us and generates the choices we make. And the problem with loving money, here's here's the key. The problem with loving money is that money, money is a currency of the stomach and not of the heart. Okay, money is a currency of the stomach, not of the heart. You know the saying, not everything that can be counted counts, and not everything that counts can be counted. If you can count it, money can buy it. And there's a whole lot of important things that money buys, right? Right? But our hearts are not wired to love and be satisfied merely with the things that fill our stomachs. That's just not how our hearts are made. Right? We long for a vision of the good life that fills our stomachs, yes, right? This is not, we're not Platonists. We're not trying to separate uh, just the physical is bad. No, we're saying we long for a vision of the good life that fills our stomachs, yes, with good things, but which also satisfies our souls, that heals our shame and reconciles our relationships, that places us in community, that gives us meaningful work, that reconciles us to our Creator, right, and assures us that we are known as we are, and we're loved as we are, not as we should be. So those are some of the priceless things that money can't buy. And I would suggest using cash instead of credit for the other things. But that's another lecture. You know, I think our loves are more broken than we want to admit. And I think we are, are more influenced by the highly materialistic and consumer culture that we live in than we want to admit. Right. So if love is that fundamental orientation of our life, how do we shape those loves? How do we, how do we redirect our loves to the, the good life of the kingdom and away from the good life of, of the culture? Jamie Smith, uh, in his book, You Are What You Love, has helped me a lot with this. And he talks about cultural liturgies. Liturgies, right, it's usually a church word, but it's the idea of these, these rituals and rhythms and habits that we engage in on a regular basis that are acts of worship, but don't just express worship and don't just express our loves, they actually shape our loves, right? And there's liturgies of our culture of our consumer culture that we engage in again and again without thinking about. And they express our devotion to this consumer gospel. And it doesn't just express it, it actually shapes it so that our hearts are inclined and wired that direction. So there's three things. The the messages of this consumer gospel that we have. The first one is this, and I have this cell phone. Uh, and I can check it, and I can scroll th- through things. And what it preaches to me, and what my, my rituals and rhythms with this phone tell me, is 
I am connected, therefore I am. I'm connected, therefore I am. Not I think, therefore I am. I am connected, therefore I am. Our phone and the services on it, they're built on a digital economy. Okay, and for some of us, we're digital natives, right? We grew up in this. For an older generation, you, you either have maybe disengaged with it or, you, or you're just kind of coming in as a visitor, okay? But there's digital natives, right? The millennials in our culture. And, and we just engage in it thoughtlessly. We don't realize that this digital economy has monetized our attention, okay? Psychologists build the apps that we use every day to get us to engage again and again and want to come back to it again and again, right? They, they use addiction psychology to create dependencies on being connected. And more than that, it shapes us because Google and Facebook now know everything about you, everything that you like, everything that you search for, everyone that you know. Right? The more you share with your friends, right? Big Brother is watching and he says, oh, I, know, I now know more about you. And so what, what it does is they feed back to you what you already want. And so the internet creates your own little echo chamber, right? If you like it, we know you like it, right? So we're going to feed you more of that, so you click on more of that, so we make more money off of your attention. And so the whole political, right? Uh, animosity and the right and the left and the, the craziness of our, of our political culture is directly result, result from this, this over, um, how you say, echo chamber re, uh, reality of our, of our devices. Either it, it confirms your bias or it, it ticks you off. Either one you're going to click, right? So we're going to feed you all the things that confirm your bias or we're going to feed you the things that make you angry. How could they do that? Right? They don't want the wall. Ugh. He wants to build a wall. Ugh. Whatever it is, we're going to feed it to you to get you angry, to get you to click more. And then it shapes rituals, doesn't it? What do you do in the morning? What's the first thing you have to check? What's the last thing you do at night? What do you do in your free time, in your downtime, right? This consumeristic culture, it gets you. Spending eight, nine to five, you're going to work making money. And then you're going to stop on the way home shopping and spend your money, right? And now, in between, what do you do? Right? You're standing in line. You're at the stoplight. Or you're driving, heaven forbid. Right? What do you do? Consume more. It fills all of the empty spots in our life until we can no longer meditate. We can no longer Sabbath. We can no longer just be with someone. Right? You ever been in a restaurant and you look around and you're like, there's all these people sitting with their phones across from other people that they supposedly went to the restaurant with. <laughs> right? We can't be with people anymore. That's the first one. I'm connected, therefore I am. And that those cultural liturgies shape us. Second one is I am broken, therefore I shop. In, so, right? The billboards, the advertisements, the, the, the perfect model displaying whatever it is that, that you should be wearing or whatever you should be smelling like or, or whatever, right? Or that new device that you just absolutely need. Whatever it is, there's a picture of the good life that is put before us. 
a visual icon of success, happiness, pleasure, or beauty. But there's something behind that message. It's, 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 it's whispered, and it says, that's not you. You're, you're not that. You're not that beautiful. You're not that successful. You're not that important. You're not that smart. You'll be a little closer, though, if you buy that. You'll, you'll get there a little more. And so it, it puts up before us the vision of the good life, and, that, and then it whispers to us, you're not there. You need this. And so we're constantly be- hearing we are broken. We don't have what we need. We're not as we should be. We need a little bit more. So I'm broken, therefore I shop. And the third one is, I shop, therefore I'm saved. There's a message of redemption, right? You're not as you should be without X, Y, Z. Therefore, we engage in this ritual, this process of therapy, right, that we engage in, of shopping. We, We go to the shrine of the mall or the little safe kind of screen of the Amazon lightning deals, and, and we engage and we shop. And, and it's this act of sacrament in the process. And then we take home an, an icon, a, a, a little experience of redemption. Of I have this new thing. I get to put on this new outfit. I, right? Or I have this new experience that, that now I can say I did this. And, and we have that thrill of that new life, but we take it home, and all of a sudden, it's not that shiny anymore. Or the, the media comes back around and says, it's next year. Your new device isn't new anymore. You need the new one. And it's this, this thrill is this unsustainable experience, and it wears off far too quickly. These are just three of the liturgies that we engage in of our consumeristic culture. And they don't just express our loves, they shape our loves to be more like them. And just, (laughs) some of you might be saying or thinking, boy, I'm glad I'm not like that, right? I I don't overshop. I don't do Black Friday. I don't, I'm not crazy. I I don't go all out. I'm not addicted to my smartphone, and that's not me. I budget. I save. Right? I, Solomon has something to say to, to us about that, too. Look at Ecclesiastes 5.13. Right? After talking about the person that is, is trying to be satisfied with money and getting more and more and more, then he says this. He says, there's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. Kept. Stored up. Saved. But it caused him harm. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he's a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came, he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. So here's this other person, right? You can spend your money on opulence and not be satisfied, or you can keep all your money for protection, thinking, oh, if I just get enough, I will be safe. If I just get enough, right, uh, the disaster won't come. 
Or if I have enough, I can have a legacy because I will pass this on to the next generation. And Solomon is just saying, disaster can come to anyone. The bad venture, the, the thing that goes wrong can happen to anyone. There, there is no ultimate protection in money. So, we can see what our loves are, and another angle to see this, from what our heaven is or from what our hell is. So, does a life of luxury and pleasure look like heaven to you? Maybe you love money. Or, does the idea of dying in poverty with nothing in your hand, having lost everything that you saved and invested so wisely, and you gave up so many pleasures so that you could be wise with your money, and then losing it all and dying with nothing, does that sound like hell to you? Is that a fear that you have? That maybe you love money. Okay. So we sat down with Solomon, and we've gotten some hard words, and he's helped us to step aside from that projector of the good life that the culture feeds us and says, there's, there's got to see past it. It's an illusion. It doesn't satisfy. And now we're going to sit down with Jesus. We're going to have a heart-to-heart with Jesus, and this is where we're going to end. And he's going to show us what the kingdom looks like. I want you to turn the uh, Gospel of Luke. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Just going to read a, uh, a couple of verses. In Luke 16, he says this. And you're going to see the same themes of heart, of our hearts, and of our loves as it relates to money. First, Luke 16, verses 13. Or verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. There's that that language of love again, right, in our relationship with money. Or turn a couple pages earlier to Luke 12, starting verse 32. It just says this. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's that same language, your heart. How do we direct our hearts? Right? And you have this picture of service, of worship, right? It confirms for us that, that, that money, when we love it, it becomes an idol, right? We love it, we trust it, we obey it, and we become a slave to it. And when we're a slave to it, when we serve it, it destroys us. And so Jesus gives us a path to redirect our loves. He says it there in that, that verse. Where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Your heart will follow your treasure. Right? We have these consumeristic liturgies in our culture. The way we turn from them and aren't formed by them is to enter into liturgies of worship. Rhythms of generosity. Right? There's there's no other way to overcome this pull towards consumerism than to practice generosity instead of consumption. 
right? It actually takes practice. And we engage in these biblical liturgies that Jesus lays out for us. Generosity grows, right? A satisfaction in the good life of the kingdom grows. And so we're going to end quickly with three liturgies that Christ has given us that reshape our loves away from this consumerism to the kingdom. And the first, you see that here in this passage, right? And that's the idea of accepting the kingdom. Accept the gift of the kingdom. Know that you are accepted not by anything that you have done, but simply by that free and extravagant gift of Christ. And then we give ourselves daily to step aside Right from the, the rat race, from, from just, just this mindless consumption to gaze at the vision of this good life and to accept and embrace that kingdom. We, uh, we, uh, when we started this series, we talked about the Read Scripture app and plan. This idea that we're going to be, we want to read the Scripture together through this year in this narrative approach, going through the story of the Scripture, watching the Bible Project videos that help to tie the narrative together. Do that. Make that a part of of your daily liturgy, of of your rhythms of your life. Whether it's first thing in the morning, whether it's the last thing you do at night, or it's that you you find a little uh, kind of set-aside time in the middle of your day. Engage in that. Do that with us. It's not based on, like, if you look at the app or the, the reading plan that we have right there in the back by the door, it's not based on the date. So if you're two weeks behind, you don't have to look at it. It doesn't say, well, January, right, 20th. Here's where you're supposed to be. It doesn't say that. You just start the next one you're at, okay? So don't, don't feel bad. You can start today. That's that first thing. Engage in that rhythm. Let that shape you. The second one is invest in the kingdom through giving. How else are you going to train your heart? How else are you going to speak against the messages of the culture that say, yeah, consumption, consumption, you need more for yourself? How else are you going to stand against it than to to take the time to write the check, to give to something that gets you nothing in return, whether it's giving to the body of Christ here in your local church, whether it's giving to a, a, a person in need that you just see it, it comes up, there's a need, I can meet that need, I'm going to do that. Or it's a cause of justice that you get excited about, I want to make a difference. Whatever it is, as, as we give, right, we're confessing that God's kingdom is a greater tre- treasure than our triple venti soy no uh, foam latte, right? We're, we're just, no, this is the king. This is where I'm investing. And we make it a deliberate rhythm in our life. And then finally, the last piece is invest in the kingdom through serving others, especially the poor and the marginalized. Actually giving of our time and energy and resources to serve those in need. And we're going to end on that, and we're actually going to do a short interview story just to illustrate that and, and encourage us in that direction. So I'm going to call up Tony Hoffman. He's going to come up. As you might know, he just got back from Kenya. And as we thought about, hey, how could we have him share uh, with the church, I realized that, man, he is such an example to us as a church in just the simple ways that he's engaging in living a life of generosity. Um, and, and so, and I just think the story of how he got engaged in this is so radical. So why don't you, you grab a seat here, man. Um, and I'm going to just interview you. And um, I'll let you share. We've got about probably eight minutes or so. 
Thanks. Um, hi, my name's Tony. Hi. Uh, so about three years ago, I was sitting in the pew right back there, and um, this gentleman came uh, next and was in the pew next to me, and, and I hadn't seen him before. His name was Moses. And we had been talking as a church about uh, in opening up your home and inviting people. And I knew that wasn't something that we had been practicing, um, to invite somebody new to church over for lunch. Um, but I didn't have any excuse not to. So uh, I introduced myself. Hi, my name's Tony. We'd like to invite you over for lunch. Oh, and so um, invited Moses over for lunch and heard his story that he was attending uh, an intensive at Multnomah and that he was a pastor from Kenya. And as we got to know, um, whenever you start, you know, when you hear about needs in Africa, you can kind of have that, that initial like, ooh, yeah, I know there's a lot of needs in Africa, but uh, if I give an inch, you know, if I give a dime, they'll take, you know. And so had a little bit of hesitancy as he was talking about the needs of his church that serves a poorer community in the suburb of Nairobi. Um, but one particular need, he said, was for study Bibles, that there were pastors that he had connection to that didn't even have access to an English study Bible. So he, so we, as we talked to you, I could see that was a real legitimate need, and, and so we decided we would make a habit and a routine of collecting study Bibles, and then once a month, you know, as the family would go down to the post office and kind of make a ritual of it and send a box of study Bibles. And so we did that about once a month all year, and then when Moses came back the following uh, June for his intensive here at Multnomah, uh, he invited us to come as a family. And again, we were kind of like, ooh, I don't, you know, what if we get sick or what if we miss our plane? And, and uh, my wife Lisa was like, no, this is totally something we can do. We can do that. Um, so we went a summer before last, and Moses invited us to use our gifts to minister to the church and to the school that the church had started. And, and we really saw that that was a formative event for us and the kids to get outside of ourselves and to say with our lives and with our finances and with our time that this is something worthy and life-giving. And I think that was summer of 2017 and we came back that that affected the way that we looked at our, our lives and our habits. Um, and so this time when we went, it was myself and so Sawyer and uh, Archam. The three of us went, and we wanted really to involve many more of you, and we found that this congregation was just so generous and wanting to, to be part of that and to open up our hearts. Um, around that same time, I was collecting old clarinets, and I had a hobby of repairing old clarinets, and I had a house full of clarinets that I didn't particularly need more than maybe three, because uh, how, <laughs> how many clarinets do you need? Uh, and then hearing from Moses that he had a vision to start a music school at his church, and at the same time, God was bringing two gentlemen, um, you might see their pictures coming up, which was uh, Brother Jeremiah and Kevin, who both had training in how to lead a music school, but had no space and no instruments. And some of the donated instruments that you all donated, plus the house full of clarinets, we ended up bringing about 200 pounds of, of instruments and helping them. What we thought, well, maybe we'll go and bring some instruments and do a little clinic. It turned into you as a church 
And us as a family, we helped launch a music school. And we're really praying that that becomes self-sufficient and, and goes on, provides employment, and provides the only opportunity in that whole district for somebody to get a music education. And that's pretty exciting. That is. So what I love about this is that it wasn't some like top-down, like church, a church committee says, okay, we got to go somewhere and do a mission trip, and, and so let's, let's drum up support, and let's, let, let's kind of build a team and go. This is literally someone seeing a person without shoes or with old shoes next to them uh, in the pew and saying, hey, I can meet that need. Hey, here's a visitor. Here's someone I haven't met. I can invite you over uh, for a meal. And, and uh, that image of just like pulling the string of the Holy Spirit. God, what if I just take one more little step of generosity, of sacrificial love, right? Even if it's just a sacrifice of inconvenience. And, and I just see what God does. And, and for him, like, watch out. Like, it led him to Africa. Um, what would that look like in your life? Like, let, 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 let's have more stories like that. Is there anything you want to add particularly? I, I know we, a lot of us are praying for you. Um, you just give a, a, a couple concrete answers to prayer or ways that you saw God show up on the trip. Yeah, so... Um... You know, our biggest day was going to be about the third day that right after we had arrived. It was going to be a Sunday. We were kind of had a lot of uh, responsibilities, and I was getting sick, you know, on Saturday. And I was just like, oh, this is the one thing I don't want to happen. I don't want to disappoint everybody. Um, but God answered my prayer, our prayers that gave me just enough health to really to do the health screenings, to present at the church, to go to a um, graduation ceremony afterwards, and then also my team stepped up, Archum and Sawyer did, and it was, it was neat to see that um, as God brought, brings us there, that it's not all on my shoulders, and it's not, sometimes I, we worry about trying, like what if I let people down, but that um, I had a great team to work with, and it was just a very life-giving experience. So that was a big praise. The second was... Um, we didn't have exactly the things that we thought we were doing, but man, we were busy. As you can see from the photos, um, we were building a partition wall. The school is growing there since the last time. They needed more space, space for the music school and for the classes. Um, the kids were in, in, in um, uh, vacation, so we didn't get to interact with the kids as much, but the teachers came back for an in-service, and so the things we hoped to teach the children, like the teeth brushing hygiene and the microscope, hand hygiene things, and the origami lessons. We got to teach the teachers to teach their own students. So it was busy. Um, God was, was using us. Um, it was exhausting, and uh, it was a life-giving experience for all of us. Praise God. Hey, so I, I know we didn't plan for this, but would you be open to praying for our church um, that, that these truths and this, uh, this call to look to the kingdom and to have that vision of the good life and, and that engaging in these, these uh, rhythms and liturgies of, of generosity and mission and love would be a part of our life? Yeah, yeah I'll call, call up Archim and Sawyer. If you guys could join me up here. Let's, let's pray. Father, I thank you for the uh, faithfulness of these men um, Lord, I thank you for the faithfulness of this church and the generosity to 
pour out, Lord, an expression of your love to the people of Utawala and to the church of Pepa Utawala. Father, I thank you so much that you are stirring in our hearts and our spirits a generosity towards looking outside of ourselves and outside of our little homes with our high-built walls and gates around them, Lord, that you're opening up our hearts towards one another in this room. I thank you for the work that I've seen uh, in my family and in my church family as our attitudes in this last year have changed towards each other. Father, you're calling us to step out of materialism. Lord, you're calling us to disconnect from our phones and from our gadgets. Father, you're calling us to step back into your word. Father, you're calling us to open up our eyes and our hearts towards each other and towards what you have for us. Lord, this is an exciting time. I thank you for the way that you have been working. Lord, these words that you've given to Ash this morning are challenging to me to disconnect from my addiction to buying things and being connected, to turn off my phone, Lord, and to invest in relationships. Lord, that's challenging, but I thank you for that. We need to hear your voice, Lord. We're desperate for you, and you are speaking to us clearly. Lord, light up the path for us as a church just the next few steps, and we'll walk in them faithfully as you enable us, and we commit ourselves to you. We're so thankful, Lord, for the work that you have done us and that you will continue because you're not going to leave us and you're not going to forsake us. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Tony. Gentlemen, thank you for your example of living uh, sacrificially and in a loving way that counts the cost uh, for the sake of others and for his kingdom. We're thankful for that. Now we're going to continue in our worship, and it actually culminates as we come to the Lord's table together. Um, he instituted this first with his disciples and those who would follow after, the idea of, of taking the bread and the cup and understanding and remembering. Right? This is a liturgy liturgy. Ash was talking about that. This is a formational thing where we remember the Lord's death, Christ's suffering. desire to be formed by the Word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.